I'm Gregory Berg, and I hope that you will derive some pleasure from this morning show interview that was recorded and originally broadcast back in 2005. Today on the morning show, we explore the world of the rodeo, and we do so uh, through a really interesting book called Chasing the Rodeo on wild rides and big dreams, broken hearts and broken bones, and one man's search for the West. The author is W.K. Stratton, who, uh, whose work has appeared in Sports Illustrated, uh, Outside Magazine, GQ, uh, many other uh, magazines and newspapers. Uh, his first book, Backyard Brawl, uh, uh, may be familiar to you. And uh, W.K. Stratton's uh, newest book, Chasing the Rodeo, has just been published by Harcourt. And I'm really excited that uh, for the next few minutes, W.K. Stratton can join me today on The Morning Show. W.K. Stratton, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you so much for having me. This is really a fascinating book, and it unlocks for us a world which uh, most of us have not ever really seen or closely examined. And uh, for you, it's also a very personal story, and a lot of different things and personal issues are, are, are very much tied up in it. Let's talk about that first of all. Give us some sense of how you spring from some of this and yet how f- some of this was uh, a kind of a new adventure for you. Right. Well, uh, I often tell people that I was literally created by rodeo. Um, my mother uh, was, as a young teenager and then into her early 20s, she was uh, someone who frequently went to rodeos with her girlfriends and and hung out afterwards and met uh, cowboys, went to dances and so forth. And uh, in that kind of activity, she met a, a cowboy from Denver named uh, Don Stratton. And uh, sparks flew, as they said, and, and here I am. And uh, so through rodeo, my mother met my father, who was a, uh, a rodeo cowboy. He was also a runaway dad. I never knew him. Um, and a few years ago... I managed to begin to pull together the pieces of his life, and uh, it was a fascinating tale for me. He was had kind of a, an interesting life, and but every corner I turned, I kept running into rodeo. And when I was a kid, I was around rodeo quite a lot. And it, as the years had gone by, it had sort of uh, drifted away from me. And as I found out more and more about my father, and I thought back on things that I was involved with as a child. I decided it was time for me to go out on the circuit. So in 2003, I did that, and chasing the rodeo is the result of what I observed that year and also some ruminations about my own uh, family and my own past. I love the title of the first chapter, Essential Travel, that's tied up in a great story. Explain that that chapter heading to our listeners. Well, I was uh, so fortunate at age 12 to see a a legendary event in rodeo history and maybe the most legendary event in rodeo history and that was when a a middle-aged bull rider named Freckles Brown rode the uh, unrideable bull tornado at the National Finals Rodeo in Oklahoma City. That particular year the the rodeo opened during an ice storm and uh, there were many warnings on radio and TV about uh, People shouldn't try to travel and, and so forth. And, um, you know, they, I remember the phrase used by the weathermen that only essential travel uh, should be attempted because of the weather conditions. And 
my mother, uh, by God, she was going to go see that rodeo, and it was essential travel for her. So we uh, put the chains on the car and, and headed down to Oklahoma City from my hometown of Guthrie, which is about 30 miles north of Oklahoma City. And, and thank goodness we did because I saw that, uh, that event, and it's been a, a watermark event for me in, in, uh, in many ways. Uh, when I was really trying to start my writing career, I wrote my first magazine article about Freckles Brown riding Tornado, and it was uh, sold to Sports Illustrated, which isn't you know too bad a way to start a magazine career. <laughs> and and so it's just uh, and then I you know I had the opportunity to meet Freckles later in life, and he was uh, an impressive man in in the uh, in the very lack of uh, of you know show about him. He was just genuine and honest and. And uh, sure enough, true thing, as we might say in the West. And uh, so it, it, it was essential that I make that trip for me to become who I am and to have the career I had. So I took a little play on words there between the weatherman advising only essential travel and what turned out to be essential travel for me. Right. I want to contrast that for a moment with a, another moment in the book. I can't remember now the, the exact circumstances. You'll have to remind me. But you talk about some moment uh, in your writing career, I, I think fairly early on, when you were sort of assigned to write something about the rodeo. And uh, I remember you writing about how you reacted to that assignment with some, I think, anger. Yes, I was at a, a newspaper in northern Oklahoma, and I was assigned to cover the the annual uh, rodeo, and uh, when I got that assignment, for reasons that really weren't um, clear to me at the time, and uh, and I, you know I had to think back on this a lot of years to try to figure this out, a little self-analysis here. But I I just didn't want to have anything to do with the rodeo, and I didn't want to go out and cover it. And as I've looked back on that, it was I think because of these unresolved issues I had with my birth father, who had disappeared, and knowing he was a rodeo cowboy. And uh, but at the time it was just sort of a knee-jerk reaction that I didn't quite understand. And uh, you know, fortunately, I had the good sense to end up covering the rodeo. And when I got out there, I uh, you know I uh, felt like I belonged there. It was great uh, hanging out with cowboys and hanging out with the stock contractor. And uh, and so it was uh, a good moment for me after I actually did it. And also I didn't get fired because I did cover the rodeo. <laughs> But, uh, you know, it was, you know, there were a lot of heavy issues that uh, kind of affected some mood swings I had and things like that when I was a young man. And I think it all came back to not knowing about my father and understanding his story and how it related to rodeo. Hmm. Your, your, your personal quest involves not only your father, but also your grandfather, who yes. had kind of a, a, a checkered life and, uh, and something very painful which occurred to him. Yes, my uh, grandfather I discovered, who um, died a uh, number of years before I was born, uh, uh, was a, uh, an accountant in Denver uh, associated with uh, a lot of businesses, knew very leading businessmen in the 1920s and 30s in Denver. Uh, and uh, he uh, was also an embezzler. He uh, embezzled money for years, and uh, he... Uh, finally got caught when he was in his mid-60s. Now, my father was the uh, product of his second marriage, so he was in his 60s when my father was born, and he was 65, I believe, when uh, he was convicted of embezzlement, and uh, he went off to the state prison in Canyon City in Colorado, 
And my father went at age five from a comfortable kind of lifestyle in, in uh, East Denver to uh, Larimer Square, which at that time, you know, now it's a, it's a tourist attraction in Denver, but at the time it was probably the most notorious skid row in, uh, in, uh, in the West. And so my father ended up uh, living the life uh, very similar to what uh, a character many of your listeners may know about, a fellow named Neil Cassidy lived. Um, I thought it was striking that my father and Neil Cassidy went to the same grade school. And if you uh, look at Neil Cassidy's fragment of an autobiography he worked on called The First Third, you get a feel for the desperate conditions that uh, existed in that part of Denver at that time. Neil Cassidy, I should say, of course, was the model of the, uh, the hero in Jack Kerouac's novel On the Road. And uh, so I, I just found that fascinating uh, to compare those two. And for my father, coming out of this desperate circumstance of, uh, of poverty and, and despair, uh, he found himself in the rodeo. You know, he was involved with uh, going to the, the rodeo in Denver every year. He would go up to Cheyenne and take odd jobs behind the chutes at uh, the Frontier Days Rodeo up there, the daddy of them all. And it was uh, a way of uh, making some sense out of life for him that uh, otherwise had no sense. Mm. Well, and I, I know that one of the, the final points you, you, you make about the world of the rodeo um, towards the end of the book is that it creates, for for many who are part of it, a very, very strong sense of, of community and family. And uh, maybe that's one of the things you, you discovered about it, and it helped you understand why it was important to your father. Right. You know, and I, and I should point out here, my father was never any good as a rodeo cowboy. <laughs> you know, he, uh, he was far from being a champion, yet he kept with it for year, year after year, and I think that's exactly it. He found a place for himself in that community, and he would be known by people and and, uh, you know, it, uh, it was a home for him, you might say. We're talking with W.K. Stratton. His book is called Chasing the Rodeo. Before we talk about sort of the components of the rodeo itself, which is uh, really the, in, in many ways the heart and soul of the book and what I found especially interesting, uh, it's kind of interesting to, to also read the way in which you delineate the different sorts of characters which one finds uh, in, in this world. Uh, for instance, there are some people uh, who apparently uh, come to be known as rodeo bums. Uh, <laughs> tell us who the rodeo bums are. Well, the, the rodeo bums were, uh, were my father, <laughs> you know, uh, that, mm-hmm. that sort of person. These are uh, guys who just are addicted to that rodeo world, and they, uh, they'll follow the rodeo, they'll try to participate, but they're they're not uh, particularly good at it, and they just, uh, you know, in, in his day in particular, they would uh, uh, maybe hitchhike from rodeo to rodeo and maybe sleep on the ground, and uh, they would get to a rodeo, and there's always a need for um, uh, hands to help out the stock contractor behind the chutes and the pins and so forth. So you might take on a very low-paying job there, uh, maybe spend some of the money to on entry fees or maybe spend some of it on food or beer or whatever. And, uh, but they're, uh, they're kind of uh, a lowercase g gypsy in a way. You know, they, they're wanderers. They, they follow this circuit. And, uh, you know, they have a lot of what uh, a great songwriter named Billy Joe Shaver once described as low-down freedom. 
Hmm. You say he, he can't make any kind of living from it, yet he can't turn loose from it either. Right, and there's something that's uh, enormously addictive about uh, this, this lifestyle and, and this sport. Uh, the great bull rider, Don Gay, uh, maybe the best bull rider of all time, has uh, gone on record as saying that you know, he had to give up a lot of tough things in his life. He gave up tobacco, he gave up drinking, uh, these, these kinds of things that are so difficult to come to grips with. But he said nothing that he's ever confronted in his life was nearly as difficult as when he decided to hang up his bull rope. And so it's just very hard to quit. You get uh, caught up in the adrenaline of it. You get caught up in um, the, attempting to be as skillful as you can in these events. And then also you get caught up in the lifestyle. And it's very, very hard for these people to quit. Hmm. I want you to contrast with that in some ways what is almost the opposite, not, not exactly the opposite, but you talk for a while uh, at one point in the book about other people who don't spring out of this world intrinsically at all, but are sort of trying to insert themselves into it. You say uh, no small number of guys who every day uh, cowboy up for their jobs writing insurance forms or drilling out cavities and teeth in the bright glare of fluorescent lights. They drive big four-wheel drive pickups that will never leave the pavement. Uh, they they try to sort of play act as as cowboys. Tell us more about that. How much you saw that, and 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 what the significance of it is. Well, you you run into a lot of that. Uh, you know, I think uh, there's a, an old Mel Tillis song about the Coca-Cola cowboy, or as my wife likes to call them, drugstore cowboys, uh, which actually harkens back uh, many years ago in the in the 1900s, where guys would dress like cowboys and hang around the drugstores to try to pick up girls, but they, uh, they really weren't cowboys at all, didn't know anything about riding a horse or, or so forth. There, there are a number of things that, at work there. You know, it's uh, certainly uh, uh, if you're an office worker or, you know, uh, some kinds of professionals, a lot of people who don't feel like there's any kind of, quote, manliness, unquote, involved with that will like to uh, adopt the traffic, trappings of this more manly kind of lifestyle of being a cowboy, so I think that's part of it. I think that the West itself, and especially the West as it's been defined by show business, which in part is rodeo, and particularly the movies, uh, more or less are our national cultural myth. You know, the Western is to America, in my opinion, what uh, the Trojan Moors were to Greek culture, for an example. And, And so I think a lot of people like to plug into the trappings of the Western, even if they're not real cowboys, because they want to feel like they're a part of this uh, mythology of our country that's uh, been so important. So uh, that's that's part of it, too. And then uh, a lot of it is people just like to uh, hang out at the rodeo, you know, when that comes around and dress up in cowboy clothes and have fun and uh, like to be considered as part of the, the, the crowd that's there, even if they do... Uh, spend their days drilling out teeth. Hmm. You also talk about how uh, there there are some very interesting juxtapositions which sometimes occur uh, in in the world of, of, of the rodeo. At one point you call it the yin and yang of the rodeo. You encountered it one morning when you were uh, attending what I think they call cowboy church or something like that, but... Uh, Sunday morning worship service uh, right. in the midst of a rodeo, 
and then uh, you uh, visited one of the uh, bathrooms close by, and there's a big, huge display d- dispensing condoms <laughs> with a big thing about how important that is. And you saw a lot of evidence of 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 the sort of lifestyle which that suggests. So we right. have on the one hand a relatively conservative stock, high level of patriotism, and yet on the other hand, uh, some rather fast, loose living going on a, a, as well. An uh, interesting juxtaposition of of styles and attitudes. Right, and um, and yes, I was at Cowboy Church in um, at Cheyenne Frontier Days, uh, which is quite a uh, you know quite a production. Um, there's a woman who is the sister of Reba McIntyre, who of course is a uh, well-known singer and actress uh, who uh, works as an evangelist and does many of these larger cowboy churches at. Uh, at rodeo, she's a very fine singer herself, Susie Luxinger. And uh, uh, so I was there for that. Then I stopped by the men's room, of course, and they had the <laughs> information about getting condoms. And that is true. It's sort of like one thing about country music that I like really uh, quite a lot when it is true country music as opposed to uh, a lot of what is marketed as country music now is that there is this tension that goes on between uh, a person who has an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other. You find that a lot in the music of Johnny Cash, for instance. Uh, that's one of the endlessly appealing aspects of Johnny Cash for me. Um, but, you know, rodeo culture is kind of like that. There are some uh, wild uh, uh, kids there, you know, when it comes to time to party after the rodeo. And yet there are many people who uh, embrace family values and embrace... Uh, uh, Christianity in particular, and conservative politics, and it's all part of the mix. And I, and I find that uh, extremely interesting, and uh, that tension between the two is much like you find in the best uh, country music by someone like Johnny Cash or Hank Williams Sr. or somebody like that. Hmm. Uh, I know that you say that the way this uh, gets put together, uh, some of this springs out of the real-life work of cowboys, but some of it uh, is showbiz. And right. there's also an interesting combination at work in, in what occurs at, at a typical rodeo. Right. There, there are really only uh, two events that uh, directly correlate back to what a cowboy might have done in, um, in range-style ranching back in the 1800s. And the first is an event called uh, steer roping, in which uh, uh, a rider ropes and ties a full-grown steer. That's a, that's a pretty uh, difficult sport for a lot of people to watch. In fact, it's banned in many states because the animals often uh, are subject to injury. But it was something that happened on the ranches because you had to get these, uh, you know, year-old animals and had to uh, give them medicine, had to brand them, uh, do those sorts of things. And that was one way to bring them down and subdue them so you could do that, then let them go and go out to continue grazing. Uh, the other event is uh, saddle bronc uh, riding, which uh, came out of busting horses. You know, you had uh, horses have to be trained to be ridden, and so uh, on these ranches you had to bust horses in order to get them uh, accustomed to uh, being ridden and being used to a saddle, and there was often a lot of bucking that went on there when you were involved with that activity. So those two events grew directly out of of uh, ranching. The other things you see, uh, and in particular bull riding, uh, those are those are entertainment events that have grown out of uh, 
you know, the entertainment value of rodeos and Wild West shows. You look at the very earliest rodeos, like Prescott Frontier Days in Prescott, Arizona, there were only two events, steer roping and uh, saddle bronc riding. Uh, these other things have come along because they uh, appealed to the crowds. There was never any reason for a real cowboy to ever climb onto the back of a bull, <laughs> you know, he'd, unless he'd been drinking very heavily. Because uh, it, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, that's sort of the ultimate uh, extreme sport in many ways is getting on the back of uh, a 2,000-pound animal that really doesn't want you to be there. Uh, but that was, that was not part of ranch life at all, and it was just uh, these things grew to become uh, entertainment hmm. uh, you, you You tell us about the, uh, the origins of the American rodeo mm-hmm. and how it uh, is shrouded in some mystery in terms of exactly where the first rodeo uh, occurred. You also point out quite rightly that uh, some of the earliest publicity uh, about the rodeos uh, made it sound like it was the the one and only form of entertainment in America that was created here entirely. Right. That that, that owed no uh, uh, no owed no credit to uh, any other country or tradition, which of course, uh, as you point out, is not not correct. No, and you know, you uh, if you think back on. Uh on what happened, for instance, with uh, bulls in, in uh, ancient Greeks and then also in uh, Portuguese-style bullfighting where you have uh, people mounting bulls and doing acrobatic leaps off of bulls and things like that. It's kind of a similar activity to uh, what you see involving uh, cowboys riding bulls and uh, rodeo clowns uh, working with the bulls after the ride's over. It's uh, kind of a similar sort of thing. So you can go back, uh, you know, thousands of years on, on that. But... Uh, I think that uh, it's pretty obvious that rodeo had its roots in Mexico, and it started in the 1500s when the king of Spain ordered that there be uh, annual roundups of the cattle that had been let loose in New Spain, which is now Mexico, of course. Uh, Cattle uh, were breeding prodigiously and had really taken over a lot of the countryside to the point of being a nuisance, so uh, it was a problem they had to deal with. So they started having annual roundups of cattle in Mexico in the 1500s, and these roundups, or rodeos, uh, were, became kind of fiesta events. You know, you'd have all of these young men in town to round up cattle and, and, uh, and you know, uh, take part in these fiestas. And uh, some, some exhibits of skill and bravery uh, started to, uh, to take form at that time. I think mostly because, you know, young men uh, like to impress young women, and uh, that's a kind of an age-old thing that's gone on for many years. You know. And it's certainly still going on still in this world on. of the rodeo. And by, uh, by the 1800s, this had been formalized into uh, an event called chariata. And, uh, and so the, the cult of the charro, or the horseman in Mexico, was uh, well, well established by the time of the American Civil War. After the Civil War, when... Um, it became apparent that there were a lot of uh, uh, wild cattle in Texas that could be uh, herded up and moved to railheads in Kansas and other places at, uh, and make a great deal of profit for, for people who were involved with that. Uh, the, the men who were involved with moving these cattle were, in large part, uh, Civil War vets and, and young men who really didn't know much about range cattle, so they learned many of their skills from the Mexican cowboys or the vaqueros. And, uh, you know, I think it's, 
uh, pretty obvious that uh, the, the the cult of the charo and the stories about Chariata must have been exposed to uh, to these uh, cowboys as well, because by the late 1860s, you were starting to have what were called cowboy contests, which were just, you know, I bet you I could stay on that horse longer than you can kind of thing. Well, where's your money? And, and there you go. You have a, this contest beginning. So uh, it directly, I think, comes from Mexico and, the, uh, and what they learned from the vaqueros. And uh, when you look at uh, Prescott Frontier Days, which makes a, a pretty good claim to being the world's oldest rodeo and is without question the world's oldest continuous rodeo because it's been held every year since the 1880s. Uh, the first person who won the all-around cowboy uh, uh, trophy there was a Chicano, you know, a, a, a vaquero from, uh, from New Mexico, hmm. or excuse me, from Arizona. And so, uh, you know, it, it does have its, its roots in uh, a number of uh, ethnic uh, sources, not just white cowboys. There were a number of black cowboys. One that I write about quite a bit in the book is uh, Bill Pickett, who is responsible as much as anyone for the development of a whole event, which would be bulldogging or, uh, or steer wrestling, as it's called. And he was an African-American cowboy. So, there, you know, these things, this notion that uh, rodeo started with uh, primarily white cowboys in the uh, 1880s is is not accurate. It, there were pretty, plenty of precedents before that. Hmm. We're talking with W.K. Stratton about his book, Chasing the Rodeo. I think one of the most interesting stories you tell in the book is, is about Buffalo Bill Cody right. and uh, uh, an enormous uh, entertainment uh, event which uh, he helped to create. And you, you lay the, the groundwork here by also... Uh, helping us understand how some rather drastic decline occurred uh, uh, in the 1880s, uh, just as Cheyenne kind of reached its peak as what you, as you say, maybe the greatest cow town the West had ever known. Then some very, very serious setbacks occur, and then Buffalo Bill Cody comes along just at, at the right moment, in a sense, to uh, kind of turn things around in a sense. Uh, tell us first about the decline of this region of the Old West and then what Buffalo Bill Cody managed to accomplish in the wake of that. Right. Well, uh, what, what was happening in the, uh, the upper Great Plains is that the, there had been enormously successful uh, cattle operations, many of them uh, owned and operated by uh, British entrepreneurs who had uh, come over here to uh, to get rich, and, and Cheyenne uh, was this wonderful town. Uh, it had uh, extremely elegant uh, clubs for these uh, cattle uh, uh, barons, and, and you know, very sophisticated place. And all was going well until uh, Mother Nature came around and, and hit the region with some blizzards in the 1800s that killed uh, probably hundreds of thousands of head of cattle. And it was a; these were widespread. Lizards. It, uh, as you may recall, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was in South Dakota at the time, trying his luck as uh, as a rancher, and he lost everything uh, uh, because of, of weather. Um, so it was it was just a devastating thing. And then you have a, a community like Cheyenne, which had been a, a cow town, uh, a very elegant uh, cow town, and also a railroad town, and uh, the cattle business. Uh, uh, dried up, and so what was left was primarily transportation and the, uh, the 
two rail lines that intersected there. Well, one of the, um, the railroads decided that a way to encourage people to travel uh, on the railroad was to create these little events along the rail lines, and that's really how Cheyenne Frontier Days got its start, was as a, uh, a railroad uh, entertainment uh, uh, you know, event. And uh, it was successful from the very first. But then um, within uh, a very few years of its founding, it got the official stamp of approval when uh, Buffalo Bill Cody showed up and, and rode in the parade. And, you know, Larry McMurtry has a, a new book coming out that's a uh, biography of Buffalo Bill and Annie Oakley, and, and he calls uh, Buffalo Bill the first star in America. And uh, there's a lot to be said for that. He was uh, you know, probably in, in the best-known American of his time, and, and when he put his stamp of approval on something, it, it gave it a, uh, you know, some authenticity, like the blessing of a pope almost as far as Western culture was concerned. And, uh, you know, a few years before that, he had actually uh, played an extremely important role in uh, creating rodeo when he had a, uh, a blowout celebration. Oh, yes, that, Cody's that, Old Glory Blowout. Right, in his hometown in North Platte, uh, Nebraska, which is just uh, down the rail line from Cheyenne, not, not that far. And uh, one of the things that surprised everybody about that event is he decided to include cowboy contest and he was shocked at the number of cowboys who wanted to sign up to participate with these cowboy contests and uh, also surprised at uh, how uh, how well received they were by the crowd they you know, became the uh, the crowd's uh, favorite part of this blowout and he so, called them feats of cowboy fun that's right feats of cowboy fun and that wasn't lost on people of the west you know people like in places like Pecos Texas Prescott, and they, uh, they certainly knew how successful that had been, and that inspired them to uh, start putting on uh, Fourth of July uh, rodeos in their own towns, and that's really what got rodeo as we know it now uh, rolling in the United States. Well, and I think it's so interesting you say that uh, Cody's dramatization of the American West transformed the entire region into a place of romance and glamour, and you say that before that, a typical American uh, looked rather askance at the Wild West and the cowboys that, that, that lived there. You say Buffalo Bill uh, helped transform the cowboy into an American hero, arguably the American hero. Right. And uh, I, you know, before uh, uh, Cody, and particularly the image of Cody that was developed by uh, Wild West, uh, those shows he put on, and uh, even more so by the dime novels written about him. Um, uh, before that, cowboys were looked at kind of like, uh, I guess many people in society would look at carnies today, or you know, some kind of shiftless drifter sorts of people. But uh, the, uh, after it was filtered through Cody, it became noble, it became romantic, it uh, became heroic. And at about that same time, you know, when... Uh, out on the West Coast, the film industry was getting going, and uh, they uh, certainly plugged into that as well and helped to propagate the uh, the uh, mythic cowboy as uh, it had been defined uh, through through Cody. So it, it did become, I think, the American hero. Hmm. As you describe uh, the, the various events which are part of a typical rodeo, it's interesting how often you end up using words like style, grace, 
a thing of beauty, mm-hmm. or you'll talk about the sheer improvisation which is involved in some of these events. I mean, events which just at a glance, I, th- I think none of us would, would describe in those, in those kind of terms. But I suppose especially for one with a discerning eye, uh, it contains all of those things which I just said. Right, and, and I think that's one of the beauties of rodeo as a spectator event is uh, someone who is not knowledgeable can go out and, and, and view these, uh, these competitions that take place as, uh, uh, you know, well, here's some guy holding on for dear life. That's exciting, you know, how does he keep from getting killed? And, and that, that has its appeal to the casual fan. But as you start to understand how... Um, how judges judge the animals. Now, in a riding event, such as bareback, um, saddle bronc, or bull riding, uh, the judges will be doing two things. They'll be judging the performance of the animal, and they'll be judging the performance of the cowboy. And as you begin to understand what the judges are looking for and what the cowboys are trying to accomplish, then you start to understand how graceful many of these events are and how uh, how much skill is involved, and, and indeed beauty. Um, the event that I particularly like is saddle bronc riding, and to me, uh, um, there's this thing uh, that the cowboys call a lick, when a lick gets going, and it's this kind of rolling motion up from the horse through the cowboy, and it's just this graceful back and forth kind of thing going on. It's and It's been called like uh, horse ballet to a sense, and, and I can understand that, and I... Uh, as I've uh, really tried to study this event and, and learn what the judges are looking for and learn exactly what that cowboy's trying to do with his body and with his leg movements and with his, uh, with his arm that's stretched into the air and what the horse is trying to do, you, un- you come away with this, uh, you know, it's like ice skating event or something like that. You have enormous amount of skill involved, and when you come to appreciate that, you think this is a thing of beauty. Right. Well, especially, as you say, when you have a good bucking horse, which is kicking more than once per second right. during the ride. I mean, and for for a cowboy to be uh, staying on successfully through all of that, I mean, that is no small feat. You call this the most difficult rodeo event to master of them all. Right, and that's what the uh, the cowboys have told me uh, that, that actually have done... Um, uh, numerous events, they say that getting the skill part of the uh, the uh, saddle bronc event down is the most difficult thing to to master. Uh, certainly, you have a greater chance of being killed if you're on the back of a bull, and you know the danger element is greater there, and but uh, and and the chance of injury is much greater. But as far as the skill involved, uh, there's nothing that uh, beats saddle bronc. Hmm. You just touched on the fact that, that bull riding is probably the deadliest of all the events, and uh, I imagine if one attends the, the rodeo with, with, with any frequency at all, one is apt to see some serious injuries and, and possibly even uh, somebody, being, somebody being killed. Just how dangerous are, are, is, is all of this? Well, it, it's all very dangerous. Um, you know, even uh, an event like the roping events, um, roping cattle or, or steers. Uh, where I grew up in Oklahoma, steer roping is almost uh, a quasi-state sport. Uh, it's, it's practiced by many, many people who go out on weekend jack-off, jackpot uh, 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 events, and they um, uh, uh, will, you'll, you'll see these people who are steer ropers who are missing fingers because of roping accidents and things like that. So even the safer events are, are very dangerous. A woman was killed in a barrel racing uh, accident uh, 
while I was out on the circuit in 2003, which I think many people would say that barrel racing is the safest event. Uh, bull riding, uh, bull riders are constantly injured. Um, they're, there's, they're always feeling pain. Um, there are groin pulls. There are uh, muscle pulls in the arm. There are a lot of leg injuries. These are just constants. And then, of course, if you, if you fall and you get stepped on by the bull or, or heaven forbid, the bull tries to get after you and maybe tries to gore you, uh, then you're talking about broken bones and internal injuries. And, uh, it's it's uh, terribly dangerous uh, for the cowboys who participate in it. Give us some sense of, of what kind of athletes we are talking about with the typical rodeo cowboy. And in particular, um, what sort of is the range of, of physical specimens? I mean, are we talking about people that are impressive and imposing looking, uh, you know, even, even at a glance? Or, or is there sort of a, a wider range of, of person who can be successful at this? Well, most of the successful rough stock riders that you'll encounter are not going to be people that you would uh, uh, be overwhelmed by their physicality at all. They're, uh, because a lot of this has to do with uh, the whole idea of physics and staying on uh, an animal that's moving you in different directions, it's best for you to be short and compact and, and lightweight. So. Uh, often you find, now there are always exceptions to this, but often you find the most successful riders who, who do that are maybe 5'7 or 5'8, uh, maybe 5'9 and, and weigh 145 pounds. And you, know, and you wouldn't immediately know that this is uh, uh, somebody who's involved with a, a very dangerous sport. On the other hand, you have things like um, uh, steer wrestling, and uh, there it helps to be, you know, six over six feet tall and weigh 230 pounds or something like that because there's a lot of strength needed to, uh, to, to wrestle the steer down to the arena floor. Uh, a lot of ropers are pretty, uh, pretty hefty guys, too. And so you, you have a range of body types that you see in, in, in rodeo. And uh, um, some of you, you might actually be much more impressed by the size and the, the muscles of a steer roper than you would be by... Uh, a bull rider, which may surprise some people, but uh, that's kind of how it works out. Hmm. There are some women involved uh, in this, although it is largely uh, a male uh, undertaking, right? Right. Uh, although there were women involved uh, early on, uh, there was a woman that fascinates me named Lucille Mulhall, who was yes. uh, often uh, referred to as the first cowgirl, and, and she would go to early rodeos and compete against men and often would win. She was an extremely good roper, a good rider. Uh, she was a particular favorite of Teddy Roosevelt, who had the opportunity to meet her. Um, so it's, uh, you know, women were very much involved. Um, a lot of that changed in the 1920s when a, uh, a terrific um, uh, saddle bronc rider named Bonnie McCarroll was killed at the Pendleton Roundup, which is my favorite rodeo in eastern Oregon. Uh, she got a uh, boot hung up in a in a stirrup and was dragged to death there in front of the uh, a crowd and it was such a horrific thing to view that uh, these calls came for women to be banned from uh, the uh, the traditional rodeo events as they were and um, eventually you had uh, barrel racing invented essentially to allow women to have an opportunity to get back into rodeo and compete and so that turned up kind of in the world war ii time frame 
Uh, but, I, you know, I did uh, meet a woman in Tulsa the other day, had a nice conversation with, and uh, she had uh, gone up to Pendleton, was one of three women who were invited to, uh, to ride rough stock events at a Pendleton Roundup. And so for the first time since Bonnie McCarroll's death, uh, some women uh, rode up there on, on the back of uh, a bucking stock. So uh, their women are back involved. And all along, women have uh, been very much involved with the nuts and bolts of rodeo as far as... Uh, the administrative task involved. Uh, many women have had important positions as um, working for stock contractors and you know, keeping the books and uh, making sure things get done. So uh, women have uh, never really left rodeo, but they just were taken out of, off the arena floor for a number of years. Which I other hand, uh, you spend a fair amount of time in your book talking about women being part of this world in a, in a very different way. <laughs> if I remember the term, uh, not your own term, but a term commonly used, buckle bunnies. Yes, buckle but, bunnies. Uh, but, you know, women who kind of follow the cowboys around. And, uh, um, and I, I wonder if you were at all hesitant to write about some of this which you in, in, encountered, some of these women that would come up to you during uh, some of these uh, events after rodeos were done and, and it's sort of what that side of the culture which you saw. I should think that maybe wasn't the easiest thing to, to, to write about. No, it, it wasn't because, you know, to be, to be honest about it, uh, you know, my mother was a little bit of a buckle bunny in, in her day and, uh, and that's what led to me. And so as I encountered these women and, and talked to them and uh, it, it was difficult for me both to have the, the conversations and later to, uh, to write about it. Um, although it's, you know, it's certainly a phenomenon that has not gone away. Um, I, I think I, I did quote uh, a passage from um, a book by Sarah Davidson about the uh, enormous erotic appeal of, some, of a man in, in cowboy outfit. And, and uh, of course, her story was she uh, was assigned to uh, write a satire piece on uh, cowboy poetry and, and Sarah Davidson ended up falling in love with a cowboy poet and as far as I know that relationship's still going on and so uh, you, you know it's it's still there that, uh, that that sexual appeal of cowboys to a lot of women and I certainly encountered some of them and had some interesting conversations with them. Hmm. Through the course of your book you you visit uh, a, a variety of, of rodeos and it's interesting to to hear you write about the difference in terms of authenticity, how some rodeos seem to be uh, much more caught up in the whole matter of, of, of glitz and showbiz entertainment value, while there seem to be other rodeos uh, that seem to be uh, much truer to, uh, to the roots of the rodeo. Yes, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I uh, I definitely have a preference for these rodeos that uh, try to uphold tradition, and that's why I love the Pendleton Roundup so much. It's uh, a place that uh, really tries to keep uh, tradition intact to the extent that uh, they allow no commercial advertising inside the arena, simply because there was no commercial advertising there back in 1911 when they got started with this. And, uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate that authenticity and that respect for culture and that respect for tradition. 
I found uh, some of the stuff I saw to be uh, pretty absurd. I saw a, a group of Native American dancers who were dancing to uh, kind of techno uh, music, the sort of thing you find in a club with a lot of uh, lasers shooting around and stuff. And I thought it was very an absurdist image to see someone dressed in traditional uh, attire uh, dancing to techno music. I just uh, found that very odd. And I, I find a lot of the uh, the fireworks and the lasers and all of that to be at odds with the uh, tradition of the American West, and, and uh, uh, so I uh, I don't find that appealing. And I think actually, you know, the audience when they get there, they uh, I assume that it may have some appeal to a few people, but ultimately it's the riding and, and what happens uh, when a, a cowboy's on the back of a, a bull or a cowgirl is racing around the barrels or or the, that kind of thing that's ultimately the appeal, and that that really hasn't changed. Right. I would think that part of the problem is uh, the more show busy of rodeo is, then the more it starts to look like other stuff. It starts to look a lot like rock concerts and professional wrestling and other things which we already see. And uh, the heart and soul of the rodeo, that's what is so different from the rest of our lives and the rest of our world. Yeah, and I, uh, you know, I, I wrote about some rodeo announcers uh, just to kind of uh, emphasize that point. Um, uh, as a kid, I heard uh, legends like uh, Cy Talon and uh, Pete Logan and Clem McSpadden, who uh, had these just great voices that were so perfect uh, for rodeo, and you know that was part of the show. Were these great announcers? And uh, when I was at the National Finals Rodeo in Las Vegas, the uh, the two announcers there they they almost sounded like FM radio shock jocks. They were trying to be really cranked up and and you know so. Uh, 21st century in their their approach that it just seemed to me to be uh, a failing and it it did it just made it like everything else in our culture that's uh, largely noise hmm. at the very end of the book uh in in the wake of having uh visited this very authentic uh rodeo in leaky texas um you talk about uh how you found yourself sort of bitten by almost kind of a fever. Uh, you had a real strong sense that uh, of, of trying to return to the world of the rodeo somehow. It was something which eventually passed, but, but you really write very honestly about uh, how, how much this cast a spell over you. Yeah, and it, uh, it was, you know, when I went to... Uh the rodeo there in Lakey, and also the the rodeo in Pendleton, I just uh, felt myself caught up in something big and, and something exciting and uh, something real. And uh, to come back to a world of uh, spending a lot of time under fluorescent lights and uh, dealing with voicemail and, and all of those sorts of things, I, I just I just didn't want to do it. I wanted to be out there and be uh, uh, wild and free and uh and live that life and it really it really bothered me for a while i had a had a very tough time uh, uh putting that down and you know i still feel it simmering under there and uh but yet you know i uh you do think back on well i have a house payment to make and i have to think about retirement and what about medical insurance and and all those sorts of things and i guess uh you know our intellect uh sometimes will uh, take charge and and correct a, a situation, but it was it was powerful, very powerful, and I, I didn't want to leave it. Hmm. 
very quickly, uh, you devote an entire appendix of the book to a question which probably would come up in, in, in the minds of some of our, of our listeners today, and namely the whole matter of how well are these animals treated uh, in, in the world of, of, of the rodeo. I, I found it interesting that you felt compelled to uh, devote a special section of the book expressly to this very issue. Was that someone's suggestion or, or, or just your own concern? Oh, no, that was my own concern. And um, I wanted to, uh, to address this issue throughout the book. And as you, uh, as you build these structures that a book is, you kind of think, where, where does this piece fit? And, and finally I decided this needed to be pulled out into a, a, a special section of its own. And because, uh, you know, I'm an animal lover, you know, I, uh, I uh, probably am too much of an animal lover sometimes. I mean, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that uh, I had a, a Dalmatian I had for nearly 14 years that I had to put down, and I just wept and wept over that, you know. So that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from. And, and rodeo is a thing in which animals are injured and animals uh, have to be destroyed uh, with some regularity. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like, I guess, horse racing is the same sort of thing, you know number of racehorses have to be killed every year because of injuries. And uh, so I, I was trying to meditate about what does this mean? And, uh, you know, and part of me says, frankly, maybe we're at a point in our society where this kind of activity uh, no longer has a place here because of our concerns for the, uh, for the welfare of animals. But then I got to uh, reflecting on it even in a, in a bigger thing. And uh, these animals, horses and cattle, uh, really kind of come out of the whole um, industry of beef production in the United States. And you start to think, uh, what is, uh, what, what, what's the fate of an animal? And um, a horse, for instance, that couldn't be broken for riding. And that, that happens. You find horses that you just cannot break. They're always going to be buckers. And, uh, you know, some of these horses then can become rodeo animals. And I saw an animal at, uh, a horse at uh, the National Finals Rodeo that was retired after 20 years of, uh, of performing as a bucking horse. Had it not had that opportunity to be a bucking horse, it would have been taken to a dog food factory or to a glue factory because it was no good as a riding horse. So, uh, you know, there are lives of animals that are prolonged uh, by, by rodeo. Some of these bulls, uh, you know, they, if you look at what would their fate be, well, if they weren't performing as, as riding bulls, well, ultimately they would be slaughtered for the, for the beef and the hide. Uh, so uh, it does uh, offer some hope for, for some animals to have a full, complete life. Uh, other animals like the calves and the that are used in roping and the steers used in bulldogging and, uh, and roping, you know, they're going to end up at the slaughterhouse eventually. And so... Um, you know, I, I think it's really hard to talk about rodeo and animal rights without looking at the bigger picture of what beef production is like, and and uh, it's it's a pretty pretty sad state of affairs uh, all the way around. A lot of interesting information and food for thought in this book called "Chasing the Rodeo: On Wild Dreams and Big Dreams, Broken Hearts and Broken Bones, and One Man's Search for the West," published by Harcourt and its author W. K. Stratton. W.K. Stratton, I thoroughly enjoyed this book, and I'm really glad we got to talk about it today on The Morning Show. I thank you for your time. Well, thank you so much. This has been great.